Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. We are continuing our series based on the book Wisdom for Faithful Reading by John Walton. Today, we are covering the principle that a passage cannot mean what it never meant. But before we start to unpack that principle, I want to make an important distinction. So John Walton is a Bible scholar, an Old Testament scholar, to be exact. Now, Bible scholars devote their entire careers to gathering, assimilating, and interpreting evidence for the purpose of shedding light on what the original author intended to communicate to his audience. A Bible scholar can go his or her entire life without ever discussing the contemporary significance of a passage, unless they are preaching or teaching in a local church or writing a pastoral or devotional commentary. Scholars writing at an academic level are generally not concerned with personal application. They're largely focused on the linguistic, literary, historical, and or cultural context of a biblical passage. You and I, on the other hand, have a very different relationship with the Bible. When I read my Bible in the morning, I don't pull out a whole bunch of commentaries. I usually don't pull out any commentaries. I don't do any research about the ancient culture. I don't do a bunch of word studies. I'm barely awake, to be quite honest. And a lot of days, what I'm really looking for is a quick reminder that things don't suck quite as bad as I feel like they do. Anybody feel me on that? (laughs) Most of the time, you and I sit down, we open our Bibles, we start to read. Uh, We are after a devotional reading of the Bible. Reading our Bibles is how we sit at the feet of Jesus. It's how we commune with Father, Son, and Spirit. And we want a living, active, present tense word from the Lord that we can apply to our circumstances, which is a really good desire. There is nothing wrong with engaging the Bible devotionally. I personally think it's something we should seek often. But it begs a question. If we are mostly interested in engaging our Bibles devotionally, if we are just a bunch of like regular normal people, right? We're not Bible scholars. We're just, we're just people who love Jesus, who are mostly interested in engaging our Bibles devotionally. Why bother with hermeneutics? If what we need most from our Bibles is a daily shot of encouragement or just to, you know, have a better understanding of who God is and how he works, like, what are we even doing? Why make it complicated? Here's why. Thanks to the barrage of information coming at us from all over the place, we are constantly being told what is and isn't, quote unquote, 
biblical. And our default is to assume that the professional Christian telling us what is and isn't, quote unquote, biblical, is right. So as I've pondered the why behind teaching hermeneutics, the word that continues to come to mind is discernment. Like we need to have a solid, dependable, timeless framework for evaluating all the things that we're being told the Bible teaches. We need to know how to determine whether a passage is being taken out of context or not. We need a keen eye for proof texting and theological tribalism. We need to develop a high sensitivity to the weaponization of scripture because it's not always obvious. And we need to get really good at changing our minds as we acquire better evidence related to the author's intent. While we may not be intentionally engaging in Bible interpretation every day, having these principles in our mental toolbox is going to go a long way in helping us evaluate the content that lands in our social media feeds, podcast players, and church pulpits all the time. I also believe with every fiber of my being that a solid hermeneutical method is the best way to come out the other side of a deconstruction process with stronger faith than ever and a deeper love for the Bible than ever. The things that I hear people struggling with in the Bible, teachings they're realizing were really harmful, All of that can be sorted out if we have a solid understanding of how to faithfully interpret scripture. What people are deconstructing is almost always the result of sloppy hermeneutics. That's why I'm so passionate about this. All right, back to our topic at hand, back to this distinction I was trying to make. Applying scripture determining the contemporary significance of a passage, reading the Bible devotionally, all of that is super important. But if all we care about is what a passage means to me without careful regard for what it meant for the original author and audience, things get unhinged really fast. That's when the Bible can be used to support just about anything at all. Walton offers this corrective. When we understand the meaning is located in the intentions of the authors, we realize that it therefore does not take on new shape for every reader in every era. It is always worthwhile to explore ever new significances that a text might have, but any assertion of significance must be rooted in that one original meaning, end quote. In other words, whatever personal applications we derive, there needs to be a clear path from that application to the original intent of the author. If there's no clear path between the two, then our application is probably misguided. And with that, we're right back to the core principle in view, which is 
a text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or his readers. Now, the best way to understand this is to work through a few examples. So let's start with one that Walton gives, which is the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3. Now, you and I instinctively identify the serpent with Satan, but that's because we are reading the New Testament, specifically Revelation 12, verse 9, and 20, verse 2, back into Genesis 3. So here's Walton on this. When we read Genesis 3 through Israelite eyes, and in the context of the Old Testament, we find no evidence that they considered the serpent associated in any way with Satan. And discerning what an Israelite reader would have inferred about the serpent is not a matter of consensus among interpreters. One recent option has suggested that they would have viewed it as a chaos creature, end quote. Now, this example stood out to me because I have been listening to the Bible Project podcast series on the biblical theme of the dragon or chaos monster. And oh my word, you guys, it is so much bigger and broader and multifaceted than what we think of as the devil or Satan. So if we jump straight from Genesis 3 to the imagery in Revelation 12 and 20, which, by the way, is a huge leap, (laughs) um, we completely eliminate the richly textured thought world of the ancient Near East from the whole equation. We choke out the artistry and imagination of the biblical author, and we risk drawing some faulty conclusions about the origin and nature of evil in the process. We need to sit with the contextual reading of Genesis 3 for a while before jumping to a canonical or whole Bible reading. The serpent in Genesis 3 will take on more significance for us than it did the original author because we read it in light of the New Testament. But when it comes to faithfully interpreting the passage, aka determining the author's intent, Genesis 3 cannot mean for us what it never meant for its author or his readers. And the character we call the devil simply was not on their radar at the time. Now, here's an example from my own experience, also related to the first few chapters of the Bible. I was taught that young earth creationism is the only, quote-unquote, biblical answer to the origins debate. In fact, I just got rid of an entire DVD series featuring a Christian scientist who went into great detail about how the prevailing belief that the universe is billions of years old is utterly incompatible with scripture. This was like a, I don't know, I think it had like 15, 20 DVDs as a part of this series. I loved this DVD series. I took notes when I watched it. I showed it to my kid. And then I learned about the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis 1 and what the author was actually seeking to convey in and through that chapter, which, as it turns out, has literally nothing to do with the age of the earth. 
aside from the clear statement that God is the creator of all things, no scientific claims are made in Genesis 1 because the purpose of Genesis 1 is theological. The only reason we make it about science is because we live in a post-enlightenment scientific age dominated by naturalism. We can't help but read those assumptions into the text. But the truth is, you can be a biblical Christian and hold whatever view of the age of the earth you want because it's simply not a question the Bible addresses. If a text cannot mean what it never meant, and if the biblical authors had no interest in our age of the earth question, then using Genesis 1 to defend young earth creationism as the only biblical view is a misuse of the text. All right, one more example. The book of Revelation, or really any apocalyptic passages in scripture. Now, if you grew up in American evangelicalism, you have been heavily influenced by dispensational theology, even if you have no idea what dispensational theology is. It has unfortunately formed our thinking about the end times because it's had a stranglehold on the American evangelical imagination for nearly a century now. One major facet of the dispensational mindset is the practice of matching images from the book of Revelation with specific current events or world leaders in our day. For instance, the mark of the beast has been matched up with all sorts of modern inventions such as barcodes or the COVID vaccine. The locusts have been matched with Apache helicopters and other modern war machines. The bad guys are usually matched with Russia or the European Union. The United States, of course, is always matched with the good guys. Go figure. There's an entire industrial complex centered on helping Christians decode the book of Revelation. What's fascinating is that since the early 1900s, these dispensational decoding experts have been predicting with a high degree of certainty an imminent rapture that has yet to happen. Many have gone so far as to set actual dates, all of which have come and gone. We're still here. Here's the thing. When John was moved along by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Revelation, he had the Roman Empire and the events of his day in mind. This means that a lot of what he wrote about in the book of Revelation has already happened. The idea that God would give John images that would have no real correlation with reality until the 20th century is utterly absurd and betrays a massive amount of arrogance on our part. When we apply the principle that a text cannot mean what it never meant, this kind of nonsense goes away. And the book of Revelation becomes a powerful call for Christians in every generation to live as dissonant disciples, refusing to bow the knee to empire and all it represents because their allegiance is to King Jesus. This way of reading Revelation leaves us encouraged and challenged not scared that we might be left behind or terrified that the latest news headlines signal the start of the Great Tribulation. So go ahead and etch it into your brain. A text cannot mean what it never meant. We may derive new significance from a passage for our lives today, 
But when it comes to determining the original intent of the author, we have to situate ourselves in their context and thought world. Only then can we do a good job at drawing various applications for our context. If any of these examples left you with way more questions than answers, <laughs> which is highly likely I kind of threw some real hot button examples at you. Um, I provided some helpful resources in the footnotes of the transcript. You can access that on my Substack, aprilswears.substack.com. Don't forget, April has an E at the end. Most of the content I post there is free. If you'd like to help support the work that I do, you can become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month, which you can cancel anytime if your finances or priorities change. I do provide some exclusive subscriber content. There's a four-part intro to hermeneutics class available to paid subscribers and a few raw conversations about random things like why I'm an Anglican now, my lifelong struggle with body image. Um, I just posted one Saturday about some big changes that have happened this year, most of them a little too personal to publish to the world. So I tucked them behind the paywall. <laughs> um, I'm gearing up to do a series for paid subscribers on the beautiful picture of mutuality in marriage that we see in the Bible, which is quite different from the traditional kind of gender role model I grew up with. Uh, probably another month before I roll that out because I discovered yet another book that I want to read first. <laughs> um, yeah, my toxic trait is that I over-research, but it is what it is. All right. Well, that's it for now. I'll meet you back here next week. We're going to talk about how the Bible was written for us, but not to us. This is covered on pages 25 through 30. If you're following along with the book, this one is another game changer y'all. So don't miss it. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.